0: I'm reading from Genesis 24. Abraham was old, advanced in age, and the Lord had blessed Abraham in every way. Abraham said to his servant, the oldest of his household, who had charge of all that he owned, Please place your hand under my thigh, and I will make you swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and the God of earth, that you shall not take a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites, among whom I live, But you will go to my country, and to my relatives, and take a wife for my son Isaac. The servant said to him, Suppose a woman is not willing to follow me to this land. Should I take your son back, to the land from where you came? Then Abraham said to him, Beware that you do not take my son back there. The Lord, the God of heaven, who took me from my father's house, and from the land of my birth, and who spoke to me and swore to me, saying, To your descendants I will give this land. He will send his angel before you, and you will take a wife for my son from there. But if the woman is not willing to follow you, then you will be free from this oath, only do not take my son back there. So the servant placed his hand under the thigh of Abraham his master and swore to him concerning this matter. Then the servant took ten camels from the camels of his master and set out with a variety of good things of his master's in his hand. And he arose and went to Mesopotamia, to the city of Nahor. He made the camels kneel down outside the city by the well of water at evening time, the time when women go out to draw water. He said, O Lord, the God of my master Abraham, please grant me success today and show loving kindness to my master Abraham. Behold, I am standing by the spring and the daughters of the men of the city are coming out to draw water. Now may it be that the girl to whom I say Please let down your jar, so that I may drink. And who answers, Drink, and I will water your camels also. May she be the one to whom you have appointed for your servant Isaac. And by this I will know that you have shown loving kindness to my master. Before he had finished speaking, behold, Rebekah, who was born to Bethuel, the son of Mocha, the wife of Abraham's brother Nahor, came out with her jar on her shoulder. The girl was very beautiful, a virgin, and no man had had relations with her. And she went down to the spring and filled her jar and came up. Then the servant ran to meet her and said, Please, let me drink a little water from your jar. She said, Drink, my lord. And she quickly lowered her jar to her hand and gave him a drink. Now, when she had finished giving him a drink, she said, I will draw also for your camels until they have finished drinking. So she quickly emptied her jar into the trough and ran back to the well to draw, and she drew for all his camels. Meanwhile, the man was gazing at her in silence to know whether the Lord had made his journey successful or not. When the camels had finished drinking, the man took a gold ring weighing a half shekel and two bracelets for her wrists weighing two (coughs) shekels in gold and said, Whose daughter are you? Please tell me, is there room for us to lodge in your father's house? She said to him, I am the daughter of Bethuel, the son of Milcah, whom she bore to Nahor. Again she said to him, We have plenty of both straw and food and room to lodge in. Then the man bowed low and worshipped the Lord. He said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of my master Abraham, who has not forsaken his lovingkindness. And his truth toward my master As for me The Lord has guided me In the way to the house Of my master's brothers Then the girl ran And told her mother's household About these things Now Rebekah had a brother Whose name was Laban And Laban ran outside To the man at the spring When he saw the ring And the bracelets On his sister's wrists And when he heard the words Of Rebekah and his sister Saying This is what the man said to me He went to the man And behold, he was standing by the camels at the spring. And he said, Come in, blessed of the Lord. Why do you stand outside, since I have prepared the house and a place for the camels? So the man entered the house. Then Laban unloaded the camels, and he gave straw and feed to the camels, and water to wash his feet, and the feet of the men who were with him. But when food was set before him to eat, he said, I will not eat until I have told my business. And he said, Speak on. So he said, I am Abraham's servant. The Lord has greatly blessed my master, so that he has become rich, and he has given him flocks and herds, and silver and gold, and servants and maids, and camels and donkeys. Now Sarah, my master's wife, bore a son to my master in her old age, and he has given him all that he has. My master made me swear, saying, You shall not take a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites in whose land I live. But you shall go to my father's house and to my relatives and take a wife for my son. I said to my master, Suppose the woman does not follow me. He said to me, The Lord before whom I have walked will send his angel with you to make your journey successful. And you will take a wife for my son from my relatives and from my father's house. Then you will be free from my house when you come to my relatives. And if they do not give her to you, you will be free from my oath. So I came today to the spring and said, O Lord, the God of my master Abraham, if now you will make my journey on which I go successful, behold, I am standing by the spring, and may it be that the maiden who comes out to draw, and to whom I say, Please let me drink a little water from your jar. And she will say to me, You drink, and I will draw for your camels also. Let her be the woman whom the Lord has appointed for my master's son. "'Before I had finished speaking in my heart, "'behold, Rebecca came out with her jar on her shoulder "'and went down to the spring and drew. "'And I said to her, "'Please let me drink. "'She quickly lowered her jar from her shoulder and said, "'Drink, and I will water your camels also. "'So I drank, and she watered the camels also. "'Then I asked her and said, "'Whose daughter are you?' "'And she said, "'The daughter of Bethuel, Nahor's son, "'whom Milcah bore to him. "'And I put the ring on her nose.' And the bracelets on her wrists. And I bowed low and worshipped the Lord, and blessed the Lord, the God of my master Abraham, who had guided me in the right way to take the daughter of my master's kinsman for his son. So now, if you are going to deal kindly and truly with my master, tell me, and if not, let me know that I may turn to the right or to the left. Then Laban and Bethuel replied, The matter comes from the Lord, so we cannot speak to you bad or good. Here is Rebekah before you. Take her and go, and let her be the wife of your master's son, as the Lord has spoken. When Abraham's servant heard their words, he bowed himself to the ground before the Lord. The servant brought out articles of silver and articles of gold and garments, and gave them to Rebekah. He also gave precious things to her brother and to her mother. Then he and the men who were with him ate and drank and spent the night. When they arose in the morning, he said, "'Send me away to my master.' "'But her brother and her mother said, "'Let the girl stay with us a few days, say ten. "'Afterward she may go.' "'He said to them, "'Do not delay me, since the Lord has prospered my way. "'Send me away that I may go to my master.' "'And they said, "'We will call the girl and consult her wishes.' "'Then they called Rebekah and said to her, "'Will you go with this man?' "'And she said, "'I will go.' "'Thus they sent her their sister Rebekah, and her nurse with Abraham's servant and his men. They blessed Rebekah and said to her, May you, our sister, become thousands of ten thousands, and may your descendants <coughs> possess the gate of those who hate them. Then Rebekah arose with her maids, and they mounted the camels and followed the man. So the servant took Rebekah and departed. Now as now Isaac had come from going to Bear Laharoy, for he was living in the Negev, Isaac went out to meditate in the field toward evening, and he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, camels were coming. Rebecca lifted up her eyes, and when she saw Isaac, she dismounted from the camel. She said to the servant, "Who is that man walking in the field to meet us?" And the servant said, "He is my master." Then she took her veil and covered herself. The servant told Isaac all the things that he had done. Then Isaac brought her into his mother Sarah's tent, and he took Rebecca and she became his wife, and he loved her. Thus Isaac was comforted after his mother's death. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Well, before we get into God's word then, let's just take a minute and pray and ask his blessing upon it. Father, we do just come to you in the precious, wonderful name of Jesus, who means everything to us. He is our life. Without him, Lord, we cannot exist today. And we pray that both he would be exalted and he would instruct us this morning and help us to see the glory of what you have done for us, the riches that we have in our Savior today. Because we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. In the book of Genesis, Isaac is a type of Christ. Now when I talk about a type, what I mean is that he's a picture. Christ, A type is some person or some event in the Old Testament that looks forward to another person or event in the New Testament. And just like a shadow kind of looks like the real thing, but not quite, well, these things in the Old Testament were shadows that looked forward to their fulfillment. Now, Isaac is a type of Jesus Christ. We know that from Hebrews 11, verse 19. And in the life of any individual, there's usually three very important events that will take place. That person's birth, their wedding, and their death. And in each one of those areas, Isaac foreshadows or typifies Jesus. Well, what do you mean, Brian? Well, let me go back with you and try to explain this. Genesis chapter 21. There we have the birth of Isaac described for us. And we notice that Isaac's birth was miraculous. It was supernatural, because his mother and father were too old to have children. Abraham was 100 years old, and uh, Sarah was 90 years old. They were past the age of childbearing, so his birth was miraculous. Well, so too, Jesus Christ experienced a supernatural birth, because his mother was a virgin. She had never known a man. In addition, Isaac was named before he was born. So too, Jesus was named before he was born. The angel told his father Joseph, "You will call his name Jesus, for it is he who will save his people from their sins." And not only that, there was a great interval of time between the promise and the fulfillment of that promise in Isaac's life. God came to Abraham and said, "You're going to have a son," and in his in that son, all the uh, all the descendants of the world will be named, and there will be great blessing to all the peoples. But there was about 25 years between the time God made that promise and the time that it came to pass. Well, guess what? In the life of Jesus, there was about 4,000 years interval of time between the the time that God made the promise in Genesis 3.15 and the time when Jesus Christ actually was born into the world. In Genesis 3.15, God said that there's going to be the son of the woman or the seed of the woman who's going to come and crush the head of the serpent Or Satan. So in Genesis chapter 21, we see that Isaac in his birth typifies Jesus Christ. Now, chapter 22. In chapter 22, we have the death of Christ foreshadowed by Isaac. Do you remember that chapter? We have Isaac bearing the wood on his back and carrying it up to that place on Mount Moriah where he would be offered. Well, in the same way, we find Jesus Christ bearing the cross beams across his back and carrying the wood up to the place where he would be nailed to that cross. Not only that, but we made a case last week that Isaac was probably not a small little child of four or five years old. He was probably in his late teens or early 20s. That's what the word lad or na'ar in Hebrew usually means. And if that's true, that means that Isaac submitted to his father. He was willing to allow his father to go through with this act of worship and this act of of killing his own son because he trusted God and he trusted that his father had heard from God. So too Jesus Christ voluntarily laid down his life. No man forced him to lay down his life. He voluntarily laid it down and took it up again. Not only that, but we see another aspect of this type where three days after the father told Abraham that he must kill his son, the father received back the son, safe and sound. So, from the moment God told Abraham, you're going to have to kill your son, Isaac was dead to Abraham. Three days later, he receives him back. Well, in the same way, three days after Jesus actually dies, he's raised literally bodily from the dead, Amen. destroying death, conquering death for us. And then you remember what happens to Isaac, where does he go after he's received back? Back to his father's house. Back to Beersheba. What does Jesus do after he's raised from the dead? He ascends to heaven back to his father's house. So in all these points, Isaac typifies Jesus. Now go over a couple chapters further to chapter 24. That's the chapter we're in today. After Jesus is born... After Jesus dies, after Jesus is raised from the dead, after Jesus ascends to heaven, what happens? Here we find Abraham calling his trusted servant to himself, sending him on a mission to find a bride for his son Isaac. And so too, the father sends out the Holy Spirit, his trusted steward into a far country, into this world, to select, to choose out a bride for his son, and to bring that bride all the way back to his son. And that's what we're going to be focusing on this morning. And As we move our our way through this chapter, there's going to be three parts that we're going to focus on. First, the mission. Okay, that's verses 1 to 9. Then the meeting, the meeting of Rebekah and this servant. That's verses 10 to sixty. And then the move, where we have Rebecca actually moving back to be with her new husband. That's verses 61 to 67. So let's jump in there. Genesis chapter 24. We're going to be looking, first of all, at the mission. And what I want you to notice, first of all, is the humility of this servant. It says in verse 1, Now Abraham was old and advanced in age, and the Lord had blessed Abraham in every way. And Abraham said to his servant, now let's just stop there, his servant. Interestingly, this servant is never mentioned, or his name is never mentioned in this chapter. He's just called the man, or the servant. I think, well, why not? Why doesn't God tell us the name of this servant? In fact, I think we have a really good indication of who who he was and what his name was, because in Genesis chapter 15, verse 2, It says, Abraham said, O Lord God, what wilt thou give me, since I am childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. Now, if a man were to die without a son to be his heir, he would give his inheritance to his oldest and trusted servant. Well, we have a clue here who that is. It's Eliezer of Damascus. And do you know what the word Eliezer means? It means God is my help. Interesting. Interesting. Because Jesus said, when the Holy Spirit, the Helper, comes, he will lead you into all truth. So, what a fitting type that his name would be called God is my help, but he's not named here in Genesis chapter 24, and I think there's a good reason for that. The reason, I believe, is because the Holy Spirit delights to throw all of the attention on Christ, and he doesn't draw attention to himself. Jesus said that when he came into the world, he would testify of Christ. He would glorify Christ. He would take the things of Christ and show them to his church. So he's not named because he doesn't really care about people directing all of the focus and attention on him. He wants to direct all of the attention on the son. And he wants to woo this woman that he finds by showing her the glory of the son. So we see the humility of the servant. Now, secondly, we see the honor that is due that servant. Notice our text in verse 2. It says this was the oldest of his household who had charge of all that he owned. He had charge of all that he owned. So this is not some kind of menial slave. This was a trusted servant. Now how much did Abraham own? He was rich. He was a rich man. We find that from verse uh, 35. Here's the word of this servant. The Lord has greatly blessed my master so that he has become rich. And he has given him flocks and herds and silver and gold and servants and maids and camels and donkeys. He was a wealthy man, an extremely wealthy man. So this servant had the duty of managing all of that wealth. He is an honored steward of the house. And so too the Holy Spirit is not someone that we should lightly dismiss. He is God. He's the third member of the Trinity. He is the one that we should honor and revere and respect, just as we do the Father and the Son. Now notice, thirdly, as we move through this passage, the task that was given to this servant. Verse 3. He said, And I will make you swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and the God of earth, that you shall not take a wife from my son from the daughters of the Canaanites among whom I live. But you shall go to my country and to my relatives and take a wife from my son Isaac. So here's the task. Do not take a wife from this country. Anybody have any guesses as to why he shouldn't do that?
0: Idolatry.
1: Okay, yeah, the Canaanites were thick into idolatry, that's for sure. He was concerned that he at least found a wife for Isaac who had some, at least a vestige of an understanding of the true and living God. He also didn't want the servant to go all the way, uh, he didn't want the servant to take Isaac all the way back to Abraham's homeland. Because God had promised that land, the land of Canaan, to Abraham and to all of his descendants. And what might happen if Abraham sends Isaac all the way back to marry a wife back in his homeland. He might,
0: stay.
1: he might stay. He might decide, I'm just going to stay here and raise my family here. I'll forget all about the land of Canaan that God promised to me. So God, Abraham is very specific. Do not take my son back there. You bring a wife from there and bring her here. But here the task is, I want you to go and find this bride, bring her back. Just as the Holy Spirit is going into the world right now. Today. Even at this moment, the Holy Spirit is searching and looking and finding a bride for his son Jesus, and he's convincing her to make the trip, that spiritual journey of faith, to begin that journey and to begin going back to be with Jesus Christ, our ascended Lord of glory. And then we find the, what I'm going to call the courtesy of the servant, starting in verse 5. And the servant said to him, Suppose the woman will not be willing to follow me to this land. Should I take your son back to the land from where you came? Then Abraham said to him, Beware, lest you take my son back there. The Lord, the God of heaven, who took me from my father's house and from the land of my birth, and who spoke to me, and who swore to me, saying, To your descendants I will give this land, he will send his angel before you, and you will take a wife for my son from there. But if the woman is not willing to follow you, then you will be free from this my oath. Only do not take my son back there. So the servant placed his hand under the thigh of Abraham his master and swore to him concerning this matter. He made an oath. He took an oath. That he would do what Abraham asked him to do. Now what I want you to focus in on here is verse 8. But if the woman is not willing to follow you, then you will be free from this my oath. What he was saying is that if that woman is not willing to voluntarily come with you, then don't force her. Don't gag her and tie her and put her up on the camel kicking and screaming and bring her against her will. Don't do that. And you know, some people accuse folks like us who believe that God is sovereign in the matter of salvation. They accuse us of preaching a doctrine that's like this. They say, you guys believe that God forces people to go to heaven against their will. You guys believe that God forces people to be forgiven. They don't want it, but God makes them receive it anyway. Well, we believe nothing of the kind. Do you know what we believe? God makes us willing. (laughs) We come very willing. How did the servant get this woman to come? What did he have to do to make her willing? He had to show her the glory of the man to whom she would be married. And she was, or he was very convincing, wasn't he? He was very persuasive. He took out articles of silver and gold and garments. He proved to her that this man was very wealthy, very important, very significant. And the more he lifted up the glory of this man to whom she would be married, the more she found her heart just melting inside. And finally, she is just done in, and she says, I will go. You see, what the servant did was he irresistibly drew the woman to the man by his convincing arguments. He made her willing. She didn't come kicking and screaming. It's not like God, you know, kicks us into heaven. I don't want to go, Lord, don't make me go. I don't want to go. No, I'm going to make you go whether you like it or not. That's not how it works. He does something on the inside of the heart, doesn't he? Changes that heart so that Jesus becomes irresistibly beautiful. And we can't live without him. If that's happened to you, it's because God did that. That was a work, a sovereign work of the Holy Spirit, showing you the glory of the Master. So there we have the mission. Now let's move on to the meeting. The meeting between this servant and Rebecca and her family. Verse 10. Then the servant took ten camels from the camels of his master And set out with a variety of good things of his masters in his hand. And he arose and went to Mesopotamia, to the city of Nahor. And he made the camels kneel down outside the city by the well of water at evening time, the time when women go out to draw water. And he said, O Lord, the God of my master Abraham, please grant me success today, and show loving kindness to my master Abraham. Behold, I am standing by the spring. And the daughters of the men of the city are coming out to draw water. Now may it be that the girl to whom I say, Please let down your jar so that I may drink, and who (coughs) answers, Drink, and I will water your camels also, may she be the one whom thou hast appointed for thy servant Isaac. And by this I shall know that thou hast shown loving kindness to my master. Okay, so here's the situation this servant needs to know who's the right girl. He believes that God has a a specific woman for Isaac. And so he prays. It's almost kind of, he puts his fleece out. Okay, I'm going to pray this prayer, Lord. And would you just work it out so that the woman to whom I say, can I have a drink of water? She says, sure, I'll give you a drink of water. And on top of that, I'm going to water all of your camels also. Now, how many camels were there? Do you know how much a camel drinks when it's thirsty? A lot. (laughs) About 25 gallons at a time. This is 250 gallons of water that she's willing to draw for the camels. And it says that she went down and came back up, probably because there were steps leading down to the well and steps coming back up. So she's getting a Stairmaster workout. She's going down probably 50 to 100 times to fill up her pitcher, coming back up, pouring it into the trough, walking down to the well, filling it up, coming back up, pouring it into the trough. And I estimate this is probably going to take two or three hours for her to finish this job of hard work. She's going to be sweaty when she's done. So this is not a little thing that he's asking God to do. It's a big thing. What woman is going to be willing to do that? Well, God's going to have to work it out so that happens. What I really want you to see here is verse 14. He says... Lord, may she be the one whom thou hast appointed for thy servant Isaac. You see, he it's not that this woman is going to draw the water in order to become appointed. She's going to draw water because she already is appointed. You see the tense of the verbs? Appointed is in the past tense. God has already appointed a wife for the son. He's just having to figure out who she is. And so he says, Lord... May she draw water for me and for the camels and that way I'll know whom you have already appointed. In Acts 13.48, Dr. Luke is describing the events of the mission of the Apostle Paul. Paul had been preaching in various cities and Luke says this in Acts 13.48, And as many as had been appointed to eternal life believed. Have you ever read that scripture? Have you ever noticed that? What comes first? Believing or being appointed? Being appointed. That's in the past tense. As many as had been appointed to eternal life believe the gospel. So God appoints people to eternal life, then they believe. That's what we find out happening here. This is a chosen bride. God had already chosen her. And he's revealing to the servant who that bride is supposed to be. So there's a pre-appointment of this bride. Notice also the beauty of this bride. Verse 15. And it came about before he had finished speaking that behold, Rebekah, who was born to Bethuel, the son of Milcah, the wife of Abraham's brother Nahor, came out with her jar on her shoulder. And the girl was very beautiful. It doesn't just say she was beautiful. She was very beautiful. Do you think there might be some typical significance in that, folks? I think so. Because in Ephesians 5.27, Paul is writing about the church. He calls her a bride. And he says, Husbands, you love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her. And then he says, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present to himself the church in all of her glory, having no spot, or a wrinkle, or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. One day, in a very practical sense, every one of us that have been born again by the Holy Spirit, we are going to be presented to our bridegroom. And we're going to be presented holy and blameless in all of our glory. You know, whenever you go to a wedding, and you watch the everyone stands up, and, bam, da, bam, and here she comes down the aisle... Everyone's oohing and on. Doesn't she look beautiful? Well, that's just a, a preamble.
0: <laughs>
1: that's that's going to prefigure this great wedding day when the church is going to be brought to her bridegroom in all of her glory. And folks, practically, that'll be true then, but in a positional sense, it's already true now. Do you know how God sees you? You are very beautiful. So wait a minute, how could I be beautiful? I I have all kinds of problems. My life is a mess sometimes. I have sin issues I'm dealing with. How could God ever see me as being very beautiful? Well, if he looked at you in yourself, he would see warts. (laughs) He would see all kinds of ugly flaws in you, and he'd see that in me. But he doesn't look at you as being in yourself. He looks at you as being in Christ. And he sees him as altogether lovely. The fairest of 10,000. There is no one like the Lord Jesus Christ. And we are hid in him. So the father looks on his son and he sees a very beautiful bride. Not only that, but notice the purity of the bride. She's a virgin, it says. And no man had had relations with her. She's a virgin. Over in 2 Corinthians eleven two, Paul says that it was his job to to present the church as a chaste virgin to Christ, her husband. So we are to be a chaste, pure virgin. Now what do you mean, Brian? I'm talking not in a physical sense, in a spiritual sense. Over and over throughout the Old Testament, God would talk about the nation of Israel, and he would say that they went a-whoring after other gods, that they were harlots. And what he was talking about is they went after other loves other than Jehovah. They loved this and they loved that, and they, they made these uh, these idols and bowed down to them and worshipped them. And God looked at that as being spiritual adultery. The church is to be free from spiritual fornication or adultery. We are to have Jesus as our first and highest love. We are to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. He's to be our great love. Now, oftentimes we fail. In that, we're bitterly aware of that, aren't we? Amen. Well, in a positional sense, God already sees you as a chaste virgin, just like He sees you as being very beautiful. He sees you as a chaste virgin, pure, holy. How, how can He do that? Because He's justified you by the blood of His Son. Second Corinthians five twenty one. God made Christ, who knew no sin, to become sin for us that we might be made the righteousness of God in Him. Do you know that you are the righteousness of God? How righteous is God? Perfectly righteous. You can't get any more righteous than God. That's who you are in the sight of God right now if you're trusting in Jesus Christ. If you are not trusting in Jesus Christ, God's wrath abides on you and He sees you as being vile and depraved and sinful, worthy of damnation. There's only two roads, aren't there? The narrow road and the broad road. The narrow road is made up of people who have been justified through the work of Christ. They're trusting in another. Not themselves, but in Jesus. The broad road is everybody else. They're trusting in anything else other than the Son of God who came to save us from sin. So she's a very beautiful bride. She is a virgin. She had had relations with no man. Showing us that that is the way that God views his church today. And then I want to point your attention to the hospitality of this bride. We have to jump down to verse 21. Meanwhile, the man was gazing at her in silence to know whether the Lord had made his journey successful or not. Then it came about, when the camels had finished drinking, that the man took a gold ring weighing a half shekel and two bracelets for her wrists, weighing ten shekels in gold. And he said, whose daughter are you? Please tell me. Is there room for us to lodge in your father's house? Now, this is no little request. This guy has got ten camels. Camels drink a lot. Camels eat a lot. And besides that, he's got men that he brought with him. Do you know why he would have taken a few guys with him on this journey? Can you imagine? Okay, we got one over here. Keep the camels. Take care of the camels. Okay, all right. Anybody else? For safety reasons. I couldn't hear you. coming. safety Safety reasons. That's, that's probably... I mean, imagine a guy going on a trip all by himself, with, loaded down with all this gold and all of these garments. And they're bandits back then. He's got he's to take some precaution. They didn't have guns yet, so there's safety in numbers. So he takes some of his hired men with him. It's your job to protect me and all this loot while I'm on this trip. So there's ten camels. And his big question is, is there room for us in your father's house? Please tell me, is there room for us to lodge in your father's house? And she said to him, I'm the daughter of Bethuel, the son of Milcah, whom she bore to Nahor. Again she said to him, we have plenty of both straw and feed and room to lodge in. Come on in. There's plenty of room for you and all your camels and all your men. Make yourself at home. We just want to invite you just to be our guest. What is our responsibility, folks, as the church of Jesus Christ towards the Holy Spirit. Invite him in. Make him at home. He's an honored guest in our life. In fact, he's an honored guest that lives within us. He dwells within each believer. Over in Ephesians 3.17, Paul is praying for the Ephesians, and he says that he's praying so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. That word dwell means to settle down and be at home. He says, I'm praying that Christ would be able to settle down and be at home in your hearts through faith. What does he mean? He means he's praying that Jesus would move in and be comfortable in you. Now, Jesus is in every believer, but when we are living in sin, I don't think he's all that comfortable there. It's like you have a big old house and there are certain rooms that you've locked and when you have guests that come in, They just know they can't get into that room because you've got the key and it's locked. So whatever's in that room, they're not going to be able to see. Well, What's in the room? All your junk. (laughs) This is the room, whenever you don't have any place to put something, you throw it in the room and shut the door and lock it. When Jesus comes into our life, sometimes, well, probably all the time, we've got some of those junk-filled rooms. And Paul is saying that he's praying for these Ephesian believers that they would allow the Holy Spirit into every room of their life. To sanctify them, to make them holy, to clear out the garbage and the junk and the filth and to purify that house. So the hospitality of the bride. She invites this servant to come in and make himself at home with all of his men, all of his camels. Let's go on further in the story. I want to show you the gifts that are given to this bride. Look at verse 50. Then Laban and Bethuel answered and said, The matter comes from the Lord, so we cannot speak to you bad or good. Behold, Rebekah is before you. Take her and go, and let her be the wife of your master's son, as the Lord has spoken. So at this point, Laban and Rebekah's father, they seem to be okay with her going and joining this servant and marrying this man Isaac, even though he lives 500 miles away. And it came about when Abraham's servant heard their words that he bowed himself to the ground before the Lord. And the servant brought out articles of silver and articles of gold and garments and gave them to Rebekah. He also gave precious things to her brother and to her mother. Interesting. The servant brings out gifts. Now this isn't the first time he's done it. Back in verse 22, it says that he took a gold ring weighing a half shekel, and two bracelets for her wrists weighing ten shekels in gold. And he gave those to Rebecca right off the bat. And then when Laban, Rebecca's brother, sees the bracelets and the ring, what does he do? Do you remember? He went
0: and got
1: the servant. Yes. The All of a sudden, Laban's real interested in that servant wonder if he's got any more of that stuff in that bag on that camel. Let's see if we can get, get our hands in that bag while he's here. And we're going to find out that Laban's a pretty crooked guy. When we get to chapter 32 and the chapters before that, Laban was a pretty crooked guy. He was a pretty good match for Jacob, who was another crooked guy, which we're going to meet um, next week. We're going to meet Jacob. So he gave gifts. Where do you suppose those gifts of gold and garments came from? His master. Because verse 35 says, The Lord has greatly blessed my master. He's become rich. He's given him flocks and herds and silver and gold and servants and maids and camels and donkeys. Now Sarah, my master's wife, bore a son to my master in her old age and he has given him all that he has. The son is the heir of everything, which is quite a bit, as we just read, that the the master, Abraham, possessed. Isaac's the only heir, and he gets everything. And then, after he tells her that, he starts bringing out these articles of silver and articles of gold and garments and giving them to Rebekah, and even to Rebekah's mom and dad and brother. The whole family gets the overflow of this. Now, why do you think it was important for the servant to give these gifts to Laban and to Rebecca's mom and dad, was there a reason behind this?
0: Was
1: it like a dowry? Yes, yeah, similar to that. It was. I believe what he's doing is proving. I mean, this this is a stranger. They've never met them before. Here, a stranger shows up with ten camels. He says, "I want to take your daughter away from you, never to return again. Five hundred miles away to marry a guy she's never met in her life." He's got to do some some convincing to make sure that they believe that his story is legit. So this is his way of proving that his word is true. Do you know what the work of the Holy Spirit does in our lives? It grants us assurance of salvation. The work of the Holy Spirit in your heart and in your life will give you a sense of proof that the gospel that you have believed is true. The Spirit of God does that. He assures you He opens up a a vision of Christ, so great and so glorious, and you're captivated by that vision. And then he gives gifts, the gifts of the Holy Spirit, the work of the Holy Spirit in purifying you and making you righteous and godly. And through that work of the Spirit, you become more and more convinced that his word must be true. This gospel must be true. Over in Ephesians chapter 1, Paul is speaking about this. It's one of the blessings that has been given to us in Christ. He says in Ephesians 1.13, In him you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is given as a pledge. Anybody else have a different translation for that word? Guarantee? Guarantee. Guarantee. Good. Anything else? Down
0: payment?
1: Down payment? Sometimes they use deposit. So what he's saying is that the Holy Spirit is given as a down payment or a guarantee that the final payment is going to be given eventually. What's the final payment?
0: <clears throat>
1: what does he say here in verse 14? Our inheritance, the redemption of God's own possession. Your future inheritance in heaven. The glory of the eternal life to come. That's... that's. That's what we have to look forward to. And so God, to prove to us that that's where we're going, gave us the initial down payment. The Holy Spirit. His work in our heart. The gifts of the Spirit. The work of the Spirit. The sanctifying, purging work of the Spirit. The comfort of the Spirit. The teaching ministry of the Spirit. All of that is given to prove to us, it's a pledge, a deposit. A wedding ring, you might say. To prove that we're going to actually be married one day and inherit all of the glory of this man to whom we're going to be married. So the gifts given to the bride. Let's look also back at Genesis 24 at the decision of the bride. Starting in verse 57. So they said, we will call the girl and consult her wishes. Then they called Rebekah and said to her, will you go with this man? And she said, I love this. I will go. So... She's asked to believe the word of a man she's never met. To go to a land that she's never been to before. To leave home never to return. To marry a man she's never even seen. We're talking here about faith. She has to believe the word of this servant. She must come to a crisis of decision. Doesn't she? She has to be willing to commit and say, I will go. I will marry... Isaac. Folks, there's a difference between dating Jesus and marrying Jesus. And if you haven't married Jesus, you're not a Christian yet. If you're playing around and dating, yeah, I kind of like him, but I kind of like to do my own thing too. And Yeah, when I feel like it, I think I'll call him up and see if he'd like to get together. That's not the same thing as being converted. To be converted means that there is a committal, a committal of your life to Jesus Christ. Just like when you, if you are married, when you married that person, your old life is gone from that moment on, isn't it? The old independent person that could go wherever he wants, whenever he wants, that person doesn't exist anymore. You're a different person. You're in relationship with a person and that changes everything. You know, the old wedding vows. Will you take this man to be your lawfully wedded husband, to have him to hold from this day forward, For better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health, till death do you part. That's what God is asking of sinners. Will you take Christ? We're not, just to make this very clear, we're not talking about just raise your hand and accept Christ and go on your merry way and you've got fire insurance. doesn't matter what kind of life you live from that moment on, you're in. You're guaranteed a place in heaven. Folks, that is an abominable doctrine. That's a lie. The Bible says when you're converted, your life changes. A work of the Spirit begins to transform you. And those of you who have been born again, you know this is true. Because you're not the same person you once were. Well, you're not the person you want to be, but you're not the person you used to be either. There's been a work of grace that's been going on. There has been a committal of your life to this man. I will marry him. I will take his name upon myself. I'll lose my name. I'll take his. I'll go to be with him forever. I'm giving up my rights to live the way I please, and I'm surrendering to this new relationship. That's what conversion entails. And that's what she was willing to do. If you're here this morning and you've never become a Christian, that's what it means to become a Christian. It means to give up your old life and to receive a new one from Jesus in covenant relationship with him. Well, let's look thirdly at the move. At the move. Verse 61. Then Rebecca arose with her maids, and they mounted the camels and followed the man. There's a very good reason why they followed the man. They didn't know the way. <laughs> They're never going to find the man unless they follow the man. They don't know where Isaac is. They just know he's somewhere 500 miles away. But it's like you know, telling somebody, I want you to go down to that McDonald's and you've never been to that McDonald's in your life and you don't give them any directions. Well, how am I ever going to get there unless you show me the way? Well, the servant's job was to show the way and they were their job was to follow him as he gave the directions. Now, several things that we need to see here. First of all, notice that the bride learned about the sun on this journey. We're not told that exactly, but I don't think there's any question about that. What do you think she's going to be doing on that three to four week trip? Camels don't go very fast, folks. Camels walk about three miles an hour. This is 500 miles. That's 168 hours riding on a bumpy old camel. That's 21 days. They probably took a day off here and there just to rest up. It's probably about a four week journey. So what is she going to do riding on that camel day after day after day? Uh, Mr. Servant, could you tell me that story again? Who am I going to marry? What's he like? What's his name? So far she doesn't even know his name. What's his name? What's he look like? How old is he? What's he do for a living? So she's pumping him with questions. She wants to know about this guy she's going to marry. What are we doing on our journey to heaven? We should be pumping the Holy Spirit with questions. Every time we open this book and we don't understand something, we should pray about it. Oh God, would you reveal to me what this means? I want to know Jesus better. That's why we gather here on Sundays. We want to learn about the son. We're on a journey to meet him face to face, but we want to learn about him right now. Secondly, I believe that she was longing for the son. The more that servant told her, the more she would get this this desire, this appetite to be with him already. You know, that that four-week journey is going to get real old after a while. She wants to be there. She's longing to actually see Him face to face. We have a beautiful text over in the book of 1 Peter chapter 1. I love this one. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 8. Peter says, And though you have not seen Him, that is Christ, you love him. And though you don't see him now, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. So Peter says, you love this Jesus. You haven't seen him, but you love him. And as you think about him and contemplate him, he says, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, anticipating the day when you're going to be right with this one. So she learned about the sun. She was longing for the sun. And back in Genesis 24, she was also looking for the sun. Look at verse 62. Now Isaac had come from going to Beer Lahairoi, for he was living in the Negev. And Isaac went out to meditate in the field toward evening. And he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, Camels were coming. And Rebecca lifted up her eyes. That's the phrase I want you to see. She lifted up her eyes. I don't think that was the first time she lifted up her eyes. The servant told her, hey, we're getting close. We're getting real close. Isaac's going to be coming to greet you as soon as we get to the end of this journey. And so I'm convinced that the closer and closer they got to their destination, the more she was lifting up her eyes and scanning the horizon. Could he be coming? Is that him over there? It's just a little dot. I'm not sure. So she's scanning the horizon, looking for her husband. Folks, that's what we're supposed to be doing right now. Looking for the coming of Jesus Christ. Titus 2.13 says, Looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus. We are supposed to be looking for Jesus coming. Lifting up our eyes, scanning the horizon every day thinking, could today be the day that Jesus comes? Could it be? Of course it could. But it's wonderful. You know, in Matthew 24, Jesus said that the servant is supposed to be on the lookout because he doesn't know the day that his master is going to come back. She's scanning. She's looking. And then finally... We find in verse 67, she was loved by the son. Then Isaac brought her into his mother's tent, Sarah's tent. And he took Rebekah, and she became his wife. And he loved her. He loved her. Thus Isaac was comforted after his mother's death. There's one little detail that I didn't share with you in the introduction to this message. Remember I said chapter 21 is about the birth of Isaac. Chapter 22 is about the death and resurrection of Christ through Isaac. Chapter 24 is about the wedding of Isaac. Chapter 23 is about something else. It's about the death of Sarah. I said, well, who cares? Why, why is that important? Well, let's think about this. Abraham typifies God the Father, doesn't he? Isaac typifies God the Son. The servant Eliezer typifies the Holy Spirit. Here is Abraham's wife. Who is the wife of Jehovah in the Bible? Israel. Israel. Isaac's born in chapter 21. Isaac dies and rises again from the dead in chapter 22. And then in chapter 23, Sarah dies. Israel is set aside as the covenant people of God. And here we find Rebekah, a different bride, being brought into the very tent that Sarah used to occupy. I believe there's typical significance here. The very position and privilege that Israel once occupied has now been, it's not become the property of the church of Jesus Christ. Made up of Jew and Gentile. Ethnic Israel, set aside as the covenant people of God, and now there's a new covenant. A new covenant people, those who were saved by the blood of Christ from every nation under heaven. I want you to show, to show you this from 1 Peter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2, and it's verse 9. Peter says, but you, and he's speaking to the church made up of Gentile and Jew who have been saved, but you're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Now, in my Bible, those phrases are capitalized. Are they in yours? Okay. Do you know what that means? Yes, from the Old Testament. Specifically Exodus chapter 19. Do you know who they were applied to in Exodus 19? Israel. Israel. What's Peter doing? He's taking these titles that formerly were applied to Israel. Israel was a chosen race. They were a royal priesthood. They were a holy nation. They were a people for God's own possession. And now he's saying, those are your titles now, church. Church. Because you have been brought into the place that Israel once occupied. Sarah's dead. She's not in the tent anymore. Isaac brings his new bride into that very tent and he loves her. Folks, Jesus loves his church. He loves you because you make up that church. You're part of his bride. Never forget the great, wondrous love that Jesus has for you. You're a chosen race. You're a holy nation. You're a royal priesthood. You're a people for his own special possession. He loves you. Let me ask a few questions as we draw this message to a close. First of all, is there anyone here who's not converted? If there is anybody here who's not a Christian, God's call on your life this morning is to say, I will go. I will marry Jesus. So that sounds crazy. I'm a man and he's a man. Well, forget all that. We're talking in a spiritual sense. God is saying, will you enter into a covenant, a binding, solemn agreement between your soul and Christ? Will you surrender yourself to this one? Will you give yourself up to him? Will you come into a covenant relationship with Jesus Christ? That's what the Holy Spirit is asking you. Will you go or not? If you say yes, I will. I will. I will go. I will marry this one. In that moment, as you trust in Jesus Christ, you, you go from death to life. You're brought into the family of God. You're brought into this new covenant. And so I'm calling upon any here today. Would you make that commitment? Just between you and Jesus right now. Saying, yes, I'm willing to have Him. I want Him. I believe in Him. I trust Him. May the Holy Spirit be working right now in this room, in people's lives, to bring that about. Only He can do it. Only the the Holy Spirit can make Jesus real and precious, so precious that you're willing to give up anything in order to have Him. Another question. If you're a Christian... Do you have assurance of your salvation? Has the work of the Holy Spirit in your life given you a sense of real assurance? The gospel's true. The word of the gospel, I can trust it. I can bank on it. I know it. I know it is true. The Spirit of God has given me gifts. He's he's opened up that bag and he's given me things and it's proven to me that what he's been telling me is, is true, I believe it. Well, that's a joyous thing. And it's a horrible thing if you're a Christian and you don't have that settled. You can be saved and not have full assurance of faith. Many Christians are like that. God wants you to have full assurance. John wrote in 1 John 5, These things I've written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. God wants us to know it without a doubt. May the Holy Spirit help you to come into full assurance if you are His child. And then... Thirdly, let me just ask you this question. Are you getting tired of the journey? Are you getting weary? Maybe you are. Maybe trials and suffering. You know, Rebecca was riding that bumpy old camel. Dry, dusty, deserty conditions day after day, week after week. It was a long haul. And it is a long haul between now and heaven, usually. Unless you die quick. And it can become weary. It can become tiring. Especially when you go through hard trials and suffering for your soul. What was Rebecca's hope? What, What caused her to stay the course? It's what she had to look forward to. Right? And if you're having difficulty this morning, you're becoming weary, fix your hope on Jesus Fix your hope on the glory that shall be yours. I'm convinced that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared to the glory which shall be revealed to us. Fix your hope on what's coming. That will enable you to persevere anything. Keep your eyes on Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy set before Him endured the cross, despising the shame. Keep your eyes on Him, and He will keep you to the very end. Let's pray. Lord God, would you take this word, and there have been many things said, Lord, and I pray that you would take those things that are important and apply them to each person where they're at today, what they needed. Cause it to comfort and to cause rejoicing. and Lord, if there's someone here, cause it to make them uncomfortable until they make their peace with you. Cause Jesus to be made real, I pray, to everybody, saint and sinner alike, that you might receive all of the glory. For we pray in Jesus' holy name. Amen.